Coming up next, the booking reads Invisible Man. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bookening. This is, uh, Brandon was just commenting before we hit record, we are almost certainly getting canceled in the discussion of this oh, book. Yeah. Pretty sure we're not allowed to talk about this book. Yeah, I don't know why we would. Although, interestingly, one of the things that I want to bring up later is that Ralph Ellison has this famous quote where he says he read the Victorian novelists, he read the Russians, he read all the great works of literature, and he said, I was always the hero. And that's what great literature does is it allows you to be empathetic mm-hmm. with, with other races and with other cultures. He thought he saw himself as Pierre when he read War and Peace. The race thing didn't enter into it, which was fascinating to me because I think Ralph Ellison would get canceled for saying that. Or if I try to enter into this book in the same way and find what's universal about his experiences and about the experiences he's right about, I'm afraid that I might get canceled for doing yes. that. So... I don't know. Maybe we can all just get canceled together. Well, I think it's going to happen. We're going to get canceled for this. But I think you're right that that is what Ellison's doing. He doesn't have the easy answers, and he's criticizing a lot of the things that would get you canceled for criticizing them today. Yeah, it's true. Um, he's not overly friendly to the Marxist no, he option. Is, he is not. Not uh, overly fr- friendly to the militant, what would become the kind of Malcolm X style. Yeah. Black so Panther his, type thing either. What his I mean, uh, it's really difficult to say what his answer is. I'm not sure that he has one really, right? Self-actualization maybe, but not Booker T. Washington style self-actualization? I don't know. I don't... I don't. It has to do with responsibility, for yes. sure. And so that can get rid of pretty much all the the recent... Right. Man, <laughs> we're going to get canceled. It's okay. It's okay. Let's just embrace cancellation. This will be All a right. great last novel to talk about because I love this book. This is one of my favorite books we've read, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's just really good. Really special book. But uh, we, we're kind of um, vamping for time here while we wait for Jake. So, Isn't it sad that even that statement, you almost are afraid, can get you canceled? What, this is my favorite book? Just for two, uh, two white men saying that this is one of their favorite books. How could I understand this book? How could I enter into his plight? Am I even allowed to read this book? Am I, in fact, somehow disempowering him or uh, culturally appropriating from him if I I feel his feelings? You are. Can I even engage in black art? That's Yeah. yeah. I think I've decided you're getting canceled. So what I'm going to say, Nathan, is, yeah, you are, Nathan. (laughs) You are appropriating everything, and you're an awful human being. And I respect this novel but I can't enter into it fully because I don't have the existential standpoint from which to do that because Brandon. I am a bag of uh, what? <laughs> bones? Bones? Yeah. Bag of bones. I'm a bag of bones. <laughs> You're a bag of bones. <laughs> People may not have ever seen us. They don't know that we're not black. <laughs> <laughs> 
That might be the funniest thing we've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> you think it's pretty clear we're not black? Yeah, <laughs> uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're the uh, we're, we're we're not the blackest people around. No. It's possible we're just kind of middle class white guys. Possible. In point of fact, we could be the Brotherhood. We could be the Brotherhood. That's true. We Jake does have that glass eye. Yeah, Jake has that glass eye, and his real Creep- name is actually Jack Jack Mensel. Yeah, he creepily will. Use it as like a, like a whiskey stone. He'll put mm-hmm. it in the freezer and, hey, there he is. <laughs> hey, there he is, the man himself. We were just talking about your glass eye. Yeah. How your real name's Jack. Mm-hmm. And you like to yeah. pop it out to kind of intimidate people during the Brotherhood meetings. Yeah. <sighs> we were talking, actually, what we were talking about is how we're definitely getting canceled. And then I made the point that people listening to this podcast who've never seen our faces don't actually know we're not black. And I laughed heartily at that. You don't know, that, but that we have full a full right to engage with this text in, 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 in any which way that we choose. Who knows? But on some lower frequency, we might speak for you. Yeah. The podcast, the, the lower frequency of Apple podcasts or whatever it is that people are using to listen to this fine program, mm-hmm. which I should now introduce. It's the bookening. With me, your humble and obedient host, Nathan Aaron Alberson. We got Brandon, Jerome, Close. Mensel over there. Yep. And Jake got, adopted me. Yep. That is true. People should probably know that Jake adopted you. And hey, Dad. We, one day I may feel that you've earned the right to be called son, but today is not that day. Oh, man. Wow. Really, it really it's hurts. A reverse Aragorn kind of thing here. <laughs> One day something good might happen. <laughs> well, Brandon, in point of fact, you haven't earned the right to be called Jake's son. What have you ever done for Jake? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. No. My point exactly. Not really even sure why he adopted you, especially considering you're basically his age. Yeah, it is weird. But hey, there's some sort of tax thing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Can never get too much of that Joe Biden money. <laughs> Child tax credit, man. <laughs> yeah. Three thousand dollars a kid. Need that money. Yeah. You're oh welcome, yeah. Mm. I like Joe Biden's money. Hey, so that's Brandon Scott Chastine. That's his name. Yeah. I knew it all along. And and Brandon, why don't you introduce the most important person who has the most insightful things to say about race in America? <laughs> His name is <laughs> Pastor Jacob. I don't Kyle have a Minsel. name. He has no name. He is the invisible man. In fact, we can't even see him. Just a floating pair Where of glasses right there. Yeah. Yep. You're a phantasm. What is it? An ectoplasm? What does he say there at the beginning? He's got even a awesome. voice without a body has something to say. Yeah. And a part to play. That's right. Spitting that out like jazz, man. <laughs> is that a reference to something? Which thing? What I just said? No, what Jake just said. He says something like that at the end, doesn't he? Yeah. He definitely says a lot of things like that when he's rambling in the the preface and the epilogue. Epilogue. Yeah. Well, okay, so. Or is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my epidermis? (laughs) Brandon, you cannot read it like that. We'll get canceled. (laughs) How about Fat Alplane? Can you read it for us? (laughs) No. Fat Alplane can't come anywhere near these episodes. <laughs> Stay away, Fat Alplane. Uh, how much did you have to drink before we started recording, Brandon? <laughs> no, and can actually. you please show 
the contents of the table. <laughs> books. Yeah. All right. All That's right. my bowling yeah. ball. Bowling ball. Oh, yep. And there's yep. books and the th- cup of water. Three empty fists of whiskey and uh yep. Oh, that's uh, actually the book is it's actually one of those hollow books, like in an old <laughs> cartoon or something that has yeah a fifth inside of it. No, I did all my drinking last night, and you guys were not there. You know, yep. uh, I've got this baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Church of the King. Jake has it too, and we're in Evansville, man. It's going real well. It is going well. It's been going pretty um, well. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Solser was down and he told us about it. And you guys will be down, not to date this podcast, so people will know when we're recording it. Marry it, why don't you? Yeah. My brother's wedding is this. A couple days. Yeah. He may yeah. or may not be the dark hood lord of death. Mar- and he may or may not be marrying Maya! Maya! But we'll see what becomes of them. We'll see if they both stay on. I, my money is on, and no offense to the dark hooded lord of death, or Maya, if they're listening, but... My money is on, they both disappear, but maybe that's just me being cynical. Maybe they'll combine into one unit. Maybe they'll both stay on. I don't know. I don't know what they'll do. Well, if they do both stay on, it's just because they forget to take it off. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're kind of relying on. (laughs) That's how you make like half of your money in Patreon. (sighs) Well, guys, me and Theo, my daughter, I think I've mentioned her on this podcast before. She exists, so people don't know. We were just watching Ken Burns' Hemingway documentary. She enjoying that? She was screaming her head off, and I was just trying to make sure that she survived. And you get PBS there? My wife kind of works for them. Vaguely. Oh, she still does. Well, I don't know whether she still does or not, but we still have access to hmm. the app. So, so you've been watching that? I've wanted to see it. It is. So much, 100,000 billion percent what you would expect a Ken Burns documentary on Hemingway to be. There's absolutely no surprises. He's got Jeff Daniels reading the part of Hemingway. Mm. He's got uh, Meryl Streep reading one of the wives. It's just mm. so Ken Burnsian. And yet, like a, like a warm blanket, like a, a nice cup of tea or whatever it is that people like, it is, it is very nice <laughs> to watch. Whatever it is those kids drink. (laughs) Whatever that is that kids are drinking these days. It is nice to watch a Ken Burns documentary on Hemingway. And I I did learn one or two things that Brandon had already taught me in his two contexts. Man. Impossible. You know. What did you learn? Well. I forgot. Yeah, probably. paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I am famous for not paying attention during Brandon's context. Oh, yeah. There's definitely no way you two both drift off often and frequently <laughs> during my content. No idea what you're talking about. I, I would I would never. What I didn't realize about Hemingway, I knew about the wives. I knew about the World War I stuff. I, I knew about the lost generation. I think Brandon may have mentioned something about that modernism once or twice on the podcast. Probably not. I don't like to talk about it much. But the part that I was just watching that's pretty interesting is the stuff that he did in World War II. He was part of them marching into Paris. He actually fought a little bit. He grabbed a machine gun and was mowing down people as they went through the woods. Wow. And no, I don't the, think I've talked much about that. Yeah, no, the documentary does a pretty thorough job of what's sure the they didn't make it up. Well, the documentary is so at pains to dispel all the myths that he wasn't a starving artist in Paris. All this every time Hemingway self mythologized, Ken Burns wants to say 
now, of course, we know it wasn't really. Blah, 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 blah. So the fact, so that lends some credence to the fact that when they say Hemingway grabbed a machine gun and started blasting away, Hemingway actually grabbed a machine gun and started blasting away. Hmm. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Pretty if you like Ken's Ken Burns type stuff, which I'm I'm like I enjoyed Civil War. I don't seek him out, but yeah. I like him well enough, I suppose. I saw something I read. If you like that kind of stuff, then... okay. I'll finally get to the right sense. I heard something on NPR, a debate about whether or not PBS should be still producing these Ken Burns documentaries, or if they should be instead going more for women doc- documentary makers and uh, people of color documentary makers, and if they're not giving too much time to guys like Ken Burns. So, well, here's the thing about Ken Burns documentaries. They make money. Yeah. People like to watch them. So I don't think Ken Burns is going anywhere. This one actually does have a woman co-author. It's Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, whoever she is present Hemingway. So I don't know if people are interested in literature and in Hemingway and in modernism. And if they enjoy Brandon's context, I think you could do worse than spend six hours (laughs) watching this six hours. Yeah. It's, it's, Three episodes of an hour and 45 each or wow. change, whatever, something like that. So it's pretty interesting. It gave me the same appreciation for Hemingway that I already had, I guess. It didn't really give me a new appreciation for Hemingway. You know what it does do? Seeing a visual record, seeing all the photographs, you do understand what a, a sexually potent figure he was as a man. When you, when you actually see the photographs of what he was like as a young man, you understand suddenly the myth of Hemingway a lot better than you do when you just think of him as an old guy with a scraggly beard on a boat, which is how kind of he was like a man. Yeah. You understand why people were so in love with the myth of Hemingway. That is one thing I guess that the documentary did for me. So what's that sound? Fall in love with Hemingway. No, it didn't make me fall in love with Hemingway. They, They really emphasize his androgyny. And the fact that mm. his mother used to dress him in women's clothing and stuff like that. They really make a big thing out of that. Clothing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who hasn't been dressed in women's clothing? <laughs> What's that sound? It's, it's Fat Alplane. <laughs> hey, Fat Alplane. You're not supposed to show Yeah, he's not yourself. Here, yeah, I, no, no, I, no. I told him to get out of here. Yeah, no. This is he's not, canceled. Th- yeah, Fat Alplane is canceled. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. It's. I still love you guys. No, 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 no. Fat out plane, you're going to get us canceled. We're not interested in being canceled. Listen. I'm going to go underground to become invisible, fat out plane. I'll show you one day. <laughs> Wonder Woman's going to ride you around. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be appropriated. Whoa. This is um, some scene at the end of that book that might. Yeah. Fat out plane went, is going underground. Well, guys. Right, let's, put the, let's put the manhole cover. On Fat Owl Plane. <laughs> Maybe he'll find a mysterious phantom down there. Wouldn't that be a weird little mashup? <laughs> there's you know, a podcast idea. There's a podcast. Hey, folks, if you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking, maybe eventually. <laughs> Chip and Lance, <laughs> you could have Fat Owl Plane and the Mysterious <laughs> Phantom. You know, oh, Brandon, boy. that is that is one of the that is the, one of the big questions. Probably the, the big question we'll answer in the next couple podcasts. But what I was trying to say, what actually flew over our heads was the baggage plane, which I guess is what it's now called. It's a plane. <laughs> and 
It has baggage in it, and it indicates the part of the show where we talk about our baggage. What baggage did you guys bring to the novel Invisible Man? Uh, Jake, I think we usually start with you. I didn't know much about I'd never read the book before. Never read anything by Ralph Ellison before that I'm aware of, at least. So I think the main baggage I brought was growing up a white boy on the Ohio River. Well, what is it? I guess we might as well talk about about it because it it does make a difference. What what does it mean to grow up as a white boy on the Ohio River? So we live, we are the the front edge of the North. So uh, Evansville has all kinds of like little underground railroad monument type things. But it is a place that people escape to for industry purposes. And uh, a significant number of, of people stuck here as opposed to can, continuing to move up to India or Chicago or something like that. That was the natural pathway. So it means a little bit of that. I guess there's also just the old baggage that we've talked about in other places before of Growing up in the 90s and being mm-hmm. taught that we were taught to believe very much that we lived in a post-racial world. I very much bought into that growing up. And I had all kinds of black friends that I played with as a kid and around the neighborhoods and definitely in sports. And didn't occur to me that anything was weird until high school when things got weird. So I, I don't know. Do you mark high school as things getting weird because that's when culture shifted or because that's when the culture of your friend group shifted because of realities? The culture of my friend friend group started to shift around middle school, but I re- the pressure really got turned up in high school. So I saw in middle school, you'd sort of start to see race taking a little bit of, of precedence in, in friendships, so but not a whole lot. And, and, and at least from my perspective, that was that was one way. It was uh, suddenly some of my black friends are going to go ha- hang out with at a, a table full of black kids at lunchtime instead of with me, right, or whatever. And uh, but but especially in high school, what I saw, some people, I don't know, I, we just navigated it. We all navigated it as best we could. And I think the part that was difficult, most difficult for me to understand, and most challenging at the time was I had a couple of friends that were black that were really, really smart. Straight A students, just like really sharp kids. In high school, suddenly they start getting C's and D's. Hmm. And and I couldn't figure out why. And I had to, at some point, I can't really remember when or how I realized this, or maybe it was a conversation with somebody, I don't know. But I realized that they were tanking their grades because to succeed at school was to be white or to try to be white, or try to play the white man's game. Mm-hmm. And so they stopped, and they played, they played dumb. So that, that was just a thing that happened that I observed. And, and I've talked to a lot of different people about it, about that sort of thing. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know whether, I'm sure we've probably talked about it on the booking before, but if not, we've certainly talked about it on other podcasts before. Yeah. My, so. My friend D. Wayne, who grew up in Virginia, experienced the same kinds of things. He didn't. He maintained his grades and he got isolated um, and marginalized. And he went on to get his PhD and stuff like that. He's doing pretty well for himself right now. 
but but yeah, it's hard trying to navigate relationships and friendships and culture and cultural divides and what it all means for you and how it's all brought to bear on you when you're 14 or 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, Brandon, same question. Context from or <laughs> baggage for me. Yes, yes, yes. Including your entire history of you and race. Yeah. Well, I was a homeschooled Baptist white boy. So really, I didn't realize there was anything like race and that sort of, well, I take that back. My introduction to race and that sort of culture would have been because my grandparents lived in a neighborhood that at one point was very white, but then there was kind of a white flight when they were getting up older and then a lot of Hispanics started to move into the area. And so there was the weird cultural shift taking place while they lived there that we saw. Then their neighborhood when my parents were growing up was one where they were very comfortable with the kids going out and playing. When we were young, they weren't as comfortable with us going out and playing. And so you just saw the whole weird shift taking place. And my baggage with this book is I was introduced to this book by one of the better professors I had as an undergraduate, Dr. Parrish. Shout out to Dr. Parrish who had a wonderful class called the, wasn't his class on the long novel. That's the one where we read Anna Karenina. So I took two classes with him. This was just, oh, on a modern fiction, a modern American fiction. And so that's where he introduced me to two writers who are still fairly influential on me to, to today, which is Ralph Ellison with The Invisible Man. And then also uh, a writer called Dennis Johnson, who wrote Jesus' Son. So I'm thankful to Dr. Parrish for introducing me to these guys. And when I read this book, I was just, I was blown away. It was amazing. And part of it was Dr. Parrish. He had that rare gift of showing his enthusiasm for literature and getting students to feel it Mm -hmm. in his teaching. And, but yeah, I read this and I had never, I had never read outside of Frederick Douglass, any works, I think, by a black writer before that point. And it was eye-opening. So you hadn't read James Baldwin or any of the, any of no. those. I'd read a lot at that point. This was, I was in my undergraduate career at that point in my life, but I had stuck mainly to all the dead white guys and some of the mm-hmm. dead white women too. But right. Yeah. It would be because of this that I would get into other writers. It would be thanks to him. I'd find Salman Rushdie guys like that as well. So hmm. yeah. What's, what's the connection to Salman Rushdie? I think that it just kind of blew up my understanding of the Western canon and what mm-hmm. should and shouldn't be read, and that there was a little bit more invitation to go out and read things that other people said were good, even if it wasn't in the safe, dead white guy category. Yeah, it makes sense. Find find the best of yeah stuff. By and I found there's really good guys. stuff out there. So, like I said, I was I was kind of classically trained, kind of not, but it, it was a weird hybrid thing that I had going on. But still, a lot of the same things that a lot of homeschooled kids are going to come out thinking, which is that there's a very strict, safe area of books that you got to stay in that safe area of books. And definitely anything from the Harlem Renaissance would have been, and yeah, Ellison's not technically Harlem Renaissance, he's after that, but anything from that would have been seen as risky. Mm-hmm. So even Flannery O'Connor was seen as risky, just to show you kind of the level of comfort these people had because she was right. in the 60s man yeah. the 60s that's getting a little late there that is getting so. a little late there man yeah well my baggage is 
similar to everyone else's. I, I cannot emphasize how much I resonate with what Jake's saying, and we've talked about this in other places, as I said, but I just really assumed that we were living in a post-racial world growing up. I lived in a progressive town. I saw a lot of people of different races, and I watched PVF specials. I'm a child of Sesame Street. I am a child of Mr. Rogers. I am a child of these shows that are programmed to brainwash you into thinking that we're beyond that. That if you go out, if you if if you if you're on Mrs. Frizzle's magic school bus, there's going to be a black kid and a Chinese kid and a nerd kid, and I just that sort of brainwashing works. It worked on me. I I, I just I believed it. Yeah, and. I'm not going to pretend like there weren't blind spots in that. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there were all kinds of ways that I just didn't understand the plight of people of color. But it was this weird thing where I hate to say this because it sounds like such a hack thing to say and you get made fun of for saying it. But my first friend was black. My first best friend was Lance was his name in sixth grade. And he was the class clown. And interestingly enough, he was quite what I think of as stereotypically old school black, or he wasn't. He was just like a goofy class clown type. And I thought he was hilarious and he would make little noises and stuff. But his dad was a black Baptist preacher with this high pitched voice that would call people to the Lord. Just just very stereotypical. And his mom was this super strong no nonsense. I wouldn't quite say sassy, but you know, maybe kind of sassy black woman. And I would go to their house and I would just not really think anything of it. And then I, I would say it's really only been within the last few years that I've been thoroughly shaken out of thinking that way. And I'm still angry about it. I actually think or I suspect that we had something in the 90s, in my little world at least. Like, we'd been taught that there wasn't a difference and we actually sort of believed it. And they took that away from us. You can't do that anymore. If I see a black person now, if I see a person of any other race, I am forced to think of them as other in a way that I did not... It's not that I didn't allow myself to think, it's that I... I just was programmed automatically to reject those kinds of thoughts. Mm -hmm. And now I can't do that anymore. And, you know, we could spend several podcasts litigating whether that's a good or a bad thing. But if I'm just going to describe my own subjective experience, I'm still angry about that. I'm angry that they took away the dream from me because now I feel like it's really complicated to navigate relationships with the people in the neighborhood that I live in, in Evansville, who are black, like I feel like I have to put a lot of thought into what I'm communicating when I communicate to them. And I didn't used to feel like that. I used to feel like we were just people mm -hmm. that could communicate. And so I'm angry about it. And that's, so that's, <laughs> there's, there's my, there's my baggage with race. My baggage with this novel is that I, I, I am the person that Brandon often likes to describe when he says, classically educated Christians despise this stuff because they just feel like politics are being jammed down their throat. And so they 
they actually stepped too far away from it. I just remember I went to Christian school, so mostly what we did was dead white guys. But then you'd be forced to read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, mm-hmm. and these kind of dippy, lame, conservative, socially progressive novels. And then you were aware of this whole corpus of things, White Teeth by Zadie Smith or Beloved or by Toni Morrison or all these things that you just see at Barnes and Nobles that are like on the shelf for Black History Month or whatever. And you're just like, well, that must be garbage. There's no way that anybody likes that except for that they're supporting some kind of political ideal. That was just my assumption. And really what's happened is over the last couple of years, as Black Lives Matter has happened, as, I'm sorry if this is lame, but as Black Panther hit the scene, as these different things have happened in the zeitgeist, I've tried to find my footing. And so I've, I've read a lot of these texts. James Baldwin's Go Tell It on a Mountain, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Beloved. I just sort of a year or two ago said, I just want to read all of these just to see if there's something I'm missing or if there's some, I just want to find the key. I want to find the way forward because I don't understand where we're at as a, as a society. And it's up for me, Nathan Aaron Alberson to fix it all for us. So what's the key? How can I, how can I understand this? And so I read all these novels and most of them turned out to be quite wonderful, but invisible man, far and away the best. I mean, just, A work of genius, a, a one of the great 20th century novels, maybe one of the great novels, period. I don't know. Maybe we'll decide it's not because it's got some content, but man, this guy can write. And man, does he capture something in this novel. So I won't pretend like I was, I didn't grow up with this one or I, I only read it within the, for the first time within the last couple years, but even just revisiting it in preparation today reading some sections just like this guy you really feel like you're getting your fix of great writing you're injecting some pure writing heroin into your veins and you just feel it you mean just as far as style just in in terms of style and in terms of what he has to say you know yeah you're right i don't know i guess we should just talk about it so let's just talk about it but this is what i propose to do over the next two episodes let's talk about it first as a novel Mm-hmm. I think this will be the right approach, and then, and then we'll talk about it as a text. As a you know, we'll we'll try to decide whether we like what it's saying or whether we even know what it's saying. But first, let's just talk about it as a as art. So I don't know. What do you guys think of? I've already kind of tipped my hand here. Well, how do you guys feel about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison? You're right. As far as style and structure, this is pretty beautifully organized. It's got that quasi-epic quest, buildings, Roman, coming-of-age sort of thing going on with it. But he, So he's playing around with all these different forms. And he, he even has the classical structure and that you have the everything come to a head right in the middle of the novel, like literally right in the middle of the novel where he, he ends up in the hospital. You have all right. the white lights and the doctor around him, and that's kind of the turning point for him when he starts to see a change in his life. And so he's got all that balance and structure that's beneath the surface of the novel. Then he has all these really intriguing little sub chapters, not sub chapters or chapters that are happening within the novel that like every good chapter does tells a little story within the bigger story that still fits within 
the larger narrative. And so you have the wonderful, the, uh, it's hard to call it wonderful, but you have the stuff that happens with Mr. Norton. Mm-hmm. Wonderful in the sense that it's really well done. It's painful. You have the, the paint shop, the paint factory with him going down into the boiler rooms and the belly of the beast, finding that it's actually a black man that keeps everything running. And then finally he, everything with Roz, or, or how, do you, how do you say it? Raz or Roz? I think Roz, the destroyer. Roz, yeah. Or the exhorter at first and then the destroyer, which was I the only one thinking of the relationship between the two main characters from Midnight's Children with the Invisible Man and Roz? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking Shiva of... Shiva trying I, I, to hunt I, down... Go ahead. Well, I was thinking of a lot of things like that. I was thinking about Kathy from East of Eden. I was thinking yeah. about every book that we've done that's been more overtly symbolic or archetypical. Yeah, that's why I was thinking of Midnight's Children is because in some ways, this the speaker, the narrator is supposed to be a stand-in for all black men, right? right. All, the whole black race. And he's kind of has black history in his body and all that that's happening. And for some, that reminded me of Midnight's Children. And then you right. had Shiva, who was always after the main character. So all that to say, and so it is working also. So it's working structurally really beautifully. Like you said, really wonderful style. At the beginning, he promises that this is going to be like jazz. Mm-hmm. And man, it, it reads like jazz. It's just kind of, it plays off of these ideas and themes. And he still is able to knit them throughout the novel and f- follow these chains throughout. It, it's, he, he pays off on that promise. And you want a writer to do that. He's not staid and boring. He's not Victorian or anything like that. Occasionally, when he has blood, so speak, he'll be a little bit like that. Right, a character might be Victorian. But he himself, he's not afraid to write things that a a white writer might be embarrassed to say, but it's because he's doing what he wants to do, and you can feel it, and it works for him. It's really, it's great when you see it, when you see it happen like that. And so then, but then you also have the symbolism. So one thing I really appreciate is when someone wants to work in obvious symbolism in a way that's not overt and in your face mm-hmm. so it's obvious by the time you get to the end that jack with his eye you know anytime you see an eye or someone knitting you know that, that they're a reference to the fates mm-hmm. and there's even three of them right it's it's tobit and jack and then the other guy so there's right. three of them jack loses his eye and so there you, you got a reference to them being the fates behind the scenes and you never really know what they're talking about in their committee meetings but you really have to read into it to see that and I, re- I appreciate that. He's not like saying, look, look here, here's a symbol. Here's a symbol, right? So I think he's our most, of, of all the books we've read, I would say, tell me if I'm wrong, if there's someone who does it better, but it seems to me that he's the most overt, overtly symbolic writer that we've read, but also the the most able to do it with some subtlety and some class. You have somebody like Ray Bradbury, to take a silly example, who's just like, I'm doing a symbol over here. Look at my symbol. Yeah. What he's able to do with his symbols is he makes them an actual part of his natural world. Right. So they work symbolically, but they also just work as part of the story. And that's why sometimes you're just going along and you're reading, you're saying, whoa, what? that's a symbol. Yeah. Like, I didn't even realize that at first, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like I even, the, even the little and drop. And we foreshadowed it. My first speech, I'm going to talk about yeah. how we're all, we all have only one eye. Right. Yeah. And it's going to be about us taking control of our fate. Right. Yeah. So. But actually, Jack's the one-eyed man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's so when you when you start to think about it, and this is the sign I think of a great 
uh, work of literature. When you think about it, it seems obvious. There's so many cycles of death and rebirth, whether it's him getting knocked out, whether it's him in the hospital, whether it's him going underground. There's so much stuff that's so overtly Freudian or Jungian or whatever you want to say. So symbolish, so symbolic. But you put it on paper, it actually looks kind of hack, but it looks, it you feels can read thin. it and never know it without having some real knowledge of literature and symbolism yeah. behind you. Yeah, you don't belt. feel like, oh, another cycle of death and rebirth. Great. And yet he does that, yeah, I don't know how many times, there's probably a symbolic number between, behind how many times the, the, our hero is actually reborn as someone new in this novel. but. Yeah. Can you guys, am I right that he's the best that we've read in terms of that thing? Oh, I think he is. Even so the hospital scene, I'm pretty sure since that's at the, it's it's in the middle of the book, that's supposed to be like the epic journey deep into hell where you're, then you're reborn. And that's always happens right in the middle Mm -hmm. of the epic quest. But like Jake said, you have to you have to really pause and analyze and think about it. And then you're like, wow, that's, that's there. That's really good. And I didn't come across at first. It didn't, it doesn't hit you in the face. He's trying to say, it's really important that you see this literary connection I'm making. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead, he lets it do what a symbol needs to do in the first place, which is add to the meaning. It's like any good poem. You don't, until you stop and really analyze what the symbols and images are all doing, you can appreciate the technicality of it, but in the moment, you're just supposed to be caught up in the feelings and the meaning of what they're conveying at that time. And that's it's not really an analytical process. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so. I, I would say in terms of heavy-handed symbolism, or symbolism that could be heavy-handed, the book that this is really is the most like, besides Midnight's Children, is East of Eden. But East of Eden, mm-hmm. as a counterpoint, is so... I love East of Eden. I probably like it better than this book in many ways, just because it's it's more wholesome. But East of Eden is so what I just accused Ray Bradbury of being just like, it's Kathy. She's the devil. Sometimes women are just the devil. Kathy's the devil. If anyone wanted to know what she stood for, she's Satan. Like, little horns on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's just it, Steinbeck just can't help but tell you how cool he's being with his symbols and everything and ralph ellison the other guy that we've read that comes close to being able to do something like this is mccarthy but he's just so brutal that i think mccarthy does it yeah but yeah you're right rushdy was an interesting pull because rushdy is sort of he's a different a very different kind of doing it without doing it right right oh yeah he's he's a hyper he's doing it but really doing it but also not hack about it like uh Steinbeck or something. I don't know. I'm trying yeah, to he gets away with it. I'm actually looking right now through our list of just to see who else we've you've been. read. Yeah. Like, Ishiguro, I, I think actually, like I, I think Homer. Brad, How about Homer? Yeah. yeah. Homer, Homer does it okay. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, you know what, just, I, what I thought as we've talked is I, I was actually thinking about a Cohen, the Cohen brothers. I, I had the same thought. Oh, brother, where yeah. art thou? Right. Yeah. Like, exactly. Uh, yeah. In terms of someone taking myth and transplanting it to, reality and kind of doing it on the nose but also just being clever enough that they they get away with it and you don't feel like it's hack the coen brothers are actually a really good joseph conrad conrad i would put more in the camp of i'm doing symbols here they're traveling back into primordial time (laughs) colonel kurtz was darkness incarnate uh, which i love i'm not 
I'm not trying to make. It sounds like I'm being a snob towards every. Well, other I think writer. Apocalypse Now is more hack than uh, Conrad, though. I think you, you. It's hard to once you've lived with both of them and gotten some distance. It's hard to separate the two. Yeah, it is. But, it is, and and I'm 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 typifying Apocalypse Now probably more than Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness, yeah. one of the most under remembered great books that we've read. One of the best books that we've read on the bookening and one of the ones that we think of and we overlook all the time. Yeah. yeah, We hype it the least. Well, Jake, do you, you haven't chimed in too much. Uh, Do you agree basically on the greatness of like your, what are your overall thoughts? No, no, it's, it's just a masterpiece of style and structure and it's rare. uh, I think the beauty of it is that it's really rare to get those two um, together. You can see somebody be a master of, of structure and storytelling like Steinbeck or even a JK Rowling or something like that, but they're going to really hit dead wood on style yeah. all over the place. Right. And then you have masters of style who just, they're not going to propel you through a story or they don't have something to say, or it's just not interesting because the structure is so wooden, you know, all my favorites, Milhauser, Chandler, trying to think of some other examples. Mostly just Chandler. No. Mostly just Chandler. Yeah. And then a good writer brings us two together credibly enough, and a great writer, a truly great writer, masters them both really well. And really, even the greatest writers, seems like they only, some of the greatest only really touch that for a moment. Right. They graze it, right? Harper Lee... Yeah. Did it. And she did it once. Right. Tolstoy did it. Tolstoy's Tolstoy. Right. Tolstoy, yeah. So Shakespeare, yeah. Yeah. Shakespeare say Austin's Austin. Austin's not nearly as interesting structurally. No, sometimes she can drop the ball. If she's gonna drop the ball anywhere, it's gonna be on Oh, I give up. Who cares about this act this the structure of this novel, actually? We yeah, just care about and, the characters. Right. Yeah. So in and, and that's the other thing, like there's just not, I can't find a point to pick on just in terms of craft. Well, it's, probably it's, actually, a, it's almost as flawless a piece of craftsmanship as, as we've read. I feel very much about it the same way I did about To Kill a Mockingbird in, in that sense. Yeah. Were you going to pick on something? Well, I was just going to say, yes, actually, but it's one of the greatest things that we've read I'm going to pick on. And one of the things that I'm surprised we haven't thought this is like such an obvious comparison that we have, I'm surprised we haven't even gotten there yet. Maybe it's just too obvious. Huckleberry Finn. I've I've wanted to say it. Yeah, I mean, on it, Huckleberry Finn. Well, Huckleberry Finn is actually maybe even what he was thinking when he wrote this novel because Huckleberry Finn is a series of episodic, almost short story-like yeah. adventures. Each one of the adventures culminates in violence, just like this one does. It's like high comedy, violence, and satirical. It's it's a lot of the same sauce that goes into this one, but Huckleberry Finn falls apart at the. And, At the and end, Mark Twain yeah. has no idea how to actually make yeah. something out of what he's what he's conjured up. <laughs> no, I totally totally agree. I thought you were I thought you were going to pick on Invisible Man. You're bringing Huckleberry Finn in as a way to yeah. Show no, I'm picking what... on like uh, Mark Twain wishes he could bring it home as yeah. well as no. You can tell that so he spent like five years on this novel, and you can tell. I mean, he yeah. labored over this. This was and this is why stuff like this is why our even the modern system so broken why can't we give wow we gotta go back to patronage mm-hmm. and i know mm-hmm. that people have been trying right but wouldn't you rather have 
To Kill a Mockingbird and Invisible Man and nothing else oh, yeah. by either of those people than seven Harry Potter books and three Fantastic Beast movies. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I come back to Rowling because I actually think... She could have given us the one great... She really could have. Novel. I really believe in her as a writer. I really mm-hmm. do. And I know that that sounds stupid, but I really think that she could have given us something. She could have, she could have, I think she has it, had it, maybe doesn't have it anymore. Who knows? Hey, I'm I'm a resident critic and she, I I will fully admit when she wants to bring it, when she wants to just write a scene and really make it sing, she can do it. She She really can. Just doesn't do it all the time. Well, she's in a system where she's like, got to crank out these books. And got to tell this story and she's got to hit her deadlines because there's a whole machine and an apparatus and there's money, 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 money to be made. Mm -hmm. It's the brotherhood of book publishing. mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just too bad. It is, but it is. You get the rare exceptions and they don't, and they didn't write much. Like Dennis Johnson didn't write all that. He had a professorship, right? Like, and that's, that's, that's somebody, somebody's been able to do something like that they've actually they've carved out they've carved out their income somewhere else where it doesn't mm-hmm. depend on their writing mm-hmm. they found but, a way to they've found a way to make their writing yeah superfluous to their income to their income yeah so that they can focus on being creative mm-hmm. because if they're gonna make their business be creativity then it's the business that they have to feed well if i can tie it into this stupid hemingway documentary that i just watched what what becomes clear in the way that they structure the documentary and just in watching his life linearly lingering on everything with zooming slowly into photographs, Ken Burns style, is just how much Hemingway always had to go away, experience a whole heck of a bunch of life, and then five, ten years later, he'd crank out another masterpiece. Yeah. But which, by the way, here's another thing that's rat- been rattling rattling around in my brain the entire time. I've read this book and our whole discussion and that's uh, Mad Men because I don't know. Sorry, this is a really random pull, but that's just like that cycle in that embracing of our narrator. I mean, this is what some, there's certain writers and I think Hemingway is one of them where half of what he's trying to do is just be a cipher for the zeitgeist, right? Mm -hmm. I'm opening myself up. I'm, I am trying to figure out how to get the zeitgeist into me. And if I just go out and experience the experience life, it's going to click. I'm going to find it. It's going to resonate. I'm going to be able to, to repackage it and repurpose it. And that's, that's what our narrator does with the black experience. And that's what Don Draper does Mm -hmm. to sell ad ads, Mm -hmm. but it's a really great, it's a really great story. And I think part of the reason that certain it's what Ralph Ellison did. Certain artists gravitate to that kind of story because that really is just what they are and what they try to do. And that's really all that they have. Well, Ralph Ellison was a photographer as well. And so you mm. can see that he would go out and he, who was it? Berlin stories by Isherwood. That yeah. was kind of the thing. People saw themselves as a camera's eye. And I think you're right. I think he was out there trying to be the jazz artist in novel form for the black experience. Well, one, one, because I'm sorry, I just watched the stupid Hemingway documentary, mostly because my daughter was crying and ah, who am I kidding? I would have watched it anyway. I would have watched it if I had access. Well, so the thing is, Burns bores me. You're not wrong. 
You're not wrong. And I knew exactly, You're oh, not. we're going to get zoomed in photographs with celebrities reading and old then it's letters. Gonna, exactly. And he's just going to like, we're going to zoom in and we're going to move across the screen. And we're going to use the same stupid classical pieces of music and every, and some vintage jazz and stuff. It is so predictable. But Hemingway's an interesting guy and the photos are interesting and the story is interesting. And just hearing Jeff Daniels read Hemingway's prose is worth the price of admission because he's just got a fantastic voice for it. And he does the voice of Hemingway all throughout. So just hearing Jeff Daniels rasp, it was a fine world and worth fighting for is, (laughs) yeah, yeah, worth Aaron Sorkin's guy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. And you can see Aaron Sorkin's. He's, he's got a, he's out of his class. So out of his class. Is that what you said? Yeah. Like he's, he's when got you hear somebody, Jeff Daniels read Hemingway versus Sorkin dialogue. Well, it just shows how much Daniels actually brings to Daniels is really elevating that material quite a bit. Oh yeah. Um, and, and particularly with the Sorkin projects that he's done. Cause the newsroom stinks. I know everybody likes the YouTube clip of him talking about what's wrong with America, but that's because that's what's wrong with America is that we like that. That's what's wrong with America. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) People are so the only smart people us. So Ralph Ellison, they did have a quote from Ralph Ellison in the documentary read by some black celebrity as we zoomed over a photography or over a photography, over a photograph slowly. Ellison definitely keyed off of Hemingway, definitely loved Hemingway and stole as much as he could from him. And the thing that they emphasize a whole lot about Hemingway in this documentary is there's people like there's soldiers that fought with him and the soldiers will talk about how everyone else was ducking for cover, but Hemingway was just standing there and his head was scanning and you could just tell that click, 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 click. He's taking everything in. He's absorbing every piece of it, the smells, the sights, the sounds so that he can use it later. And then, a lot of the people that loved Hemingway obviously got hurt by this or criticized him for this because he, he brutally, he absorbed everything about them and then turned them into a caricature in his novel or so on. But anyway, I think Alice Ellison learned from that and is doing the same thing. This is such a richly observed mm-hmm. novel. You can just tell he knows what every place smells like. He knows what those women's perfume is. Like. He knows each person's very distinct. Mr. Norton is not yeah, the name. It's, it's very Jack. much cannibalizing real people. There's no yeah. question of that. And yeah, I had the same thought. Actually, my comparison was, was oh, what's his face? Mostly an essayist for The New Yorker. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. We just talked, we talked about him not too long ago. The humorist? Amongst ourselves. Yeah. Uh, David Sedaris? Yeah. Sedaris, yeah. Sedaris. David Sedaris, yeah. David Sedaris, yeah. I was imagining the same kind of thing. He goes through his entire life and he just, every person he interacts with is just material. Just material. Yeah, you'd never want to be friends with him. You'd never want to be friends with that. And, and, and you wouldn't be for long, actually, because yeah. once, he, once he cannibalizes you, then you're, you're done. Right. Um, but yeah, I had the more. same, that is what this man did. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, he, he didn't write that, the, the puppet jingle. He, he cribbed that from somebody from somewhere and yeah. that character and all these other characters are, they're yeah, real Clifton, people. Everybody's taken from someone. Well, everybody's taken from somebody. That's why I actually felt real pain and embarrassment during the Dr. Bledsoe scene in particular, which is when I just realized mm-hmm. I trust this guy. This is a great novel because 
that is so closely and finally observed. I just felt like I was seeing something that only black people had seen, like the bitterness that this guy expresses towards white culture and his own selfishness, his own greed, his own way way of viewing his place in the system, the way that he despises and yet capitalizes on the legacy of Booker T. Washington and all these figures. It's just so precise. And you just know Ellison had heard somebody give that speech. He just, he just had to. Or made it at some point, but probably had heard it. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, like there's nothing that's made up or exaggerated. That's right. Which is fascinating to me because he then deals in these big, broad symbols, these big, broad archetypes. And I think that's why I love this novel so much at the end of the day. I love something that can be as splashy, as mythic, as big, and yet as detailed and finely observed as this. I think a lot of my favorite books that we've read, whether it's East of Eden or Something Wicked This Way Comes or whatever, are books that do this kind of thing, but this one does it even some of the best. Goodness, yeah. But even Tolstoy, I would say he's more on the realism side of things. No, he is, like yeah. Yeah. Pierre Pierre doesn't stand for anybody else. Pierre doesn't Pierre isn't every young man. Pierre is just Pierre. And he's so Pierre that he's more real than but no, that's, yeah, that's, character that's why he went to Anna Karenina then instead of War and Peace. Yes, War right. and Peace is definitely because Anna Karenina does stand for somebody, and and Levin does stand for more than just Levin, right? While still yeah. being uniquely Levin, and Kitty stands for it for something a little bit more than Kitty, and the racehorse definitely right. stands for more than yeah, a racehorse. The racehorse is the closest we get with Tolstoy, and to the kind of thing that Ellison does all the time. Yeah, but right. I was going to say even Tolstoy. I don't think gets at that the level of being able to work symbolically that Ellison does. There's something about what there's something about Ellison's project that just lends itself to that sort of work. And I think well, it does have to do with it's kind of this myth making for go ahead. Some of it I think is just being post Jungian. Yeah. Like Yeah, I, I think he's able to draw he had consciously way more tools. Yeah. Way more tools to understand. And uh, and he's writing in the fifties, which means Freud, Young, like just all these ways of thinking about ourselves in relation to myth was out there and very becoming very popular at that time. It's like an undergrad being able to sit down and, and write a critique of, of Plato. Right. Well, the only way you could possibly hope to do that, this colossal genius that stands over Western civilization is that so many people downstream of you have dealt with Plato and dealt yeah. with Plato and dealt with Plato and dealt with Plato and built categories for understanding what's good and what's bad in Plato and synthesized it for you so that they can spoon feed you. And you can actually, as a sophomore in college who is nowhere near the genius of Plato, actually sit down and write an essay that has some accurate criticisms of Plato. Well, it's the same kind of, same kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Well, in that sense, this novel is very postmodern, whether it quite fits all the attributes of the official postmodern school. How so? What's that? What do you mean? Sorry. Oh, uh, just the fact that it's able to be so self-referential and so drawing on Western canon and elements of other things. Well, and the other way it does it is it... So with some students right now, we're reading Remains of the Day and Mm -hmm. helping them understand that the structure and the format and the storytelling perspective matters for a book and so 
that a, a big part of the meaning from Remains of the Day comes from the fact that it's Stevens who has chosen to tell this story. And Ishiguro is getting a lot out of the fact that it's Stevens writing this and thinking through that very carefully. Here again, you can't get away from the fact that it's a narrator and he's telling you the story as first person, right? And right. so a lot of that postmodernism is also coming. So a lot of postmodernists get use that first person perspective because it gives them a lot to do mm-hmm. as far as one, he can he's kind of processing his entire past here. And so he can think of it mythologically and symbolically. Right. And we don't actually have to settle the question of whether Roz, the destroyer, was this larger than life mythic figure we know that for the narrator he was and and that's enough that's enough yeah Yeah. and if he's on a piece of paper he's going to get burned as we (laughs) go back through all of the symbolic things in our lives yeah oh man speaking of things that get burned i hope that none of our patrons have ever felt burned by Mm. the content that they get behind the paywall (laughs) i know they haven't (laughs) probably not Guys, this is a great discussion. I want to continue it, but we're going to have to do it next week. Let's call out our patrons real quick. Why don't you guys say the names of fruit for these patrons? Okay. I'm sorry, folks, to to cut us off and just having a lot of fun in this kind of decision, but you know. The white father cutting us off. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Well, folks, there's only so much. The Great White Father. Isn't that what it is? You're the Great mm-hmm. White Father. I am determined to get us canceled. Yeah, why don't you guys say your favorite white thing? I'll say your favorite white thing. Are you serious? No. <laughs> say your favorite fruit. Okay. <laughs> oh, I was going to say you guys. Am I your favorite white thing, Brandon? No, you're, no. you're his favorite fruit. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well played. Zero bar. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, a definitive ranking of fruit. <laughs> that, well, that is definitive. One would, one would want some hacks. Amateur. Use this, and then we're starting at number twenty-seven. Uh, All right, let's see how many. How many? How many patrons do we have? I have never counted. That's a really interesting question, actually. Um, well, we can. Well, I know we out. have sixty-something total, but in terms of the people that we call out, well, Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds, Brandon, Cranberries, the Artful Anthony Dodger, Jake, Frankenstein. Little Anthony Cigar Store, Brandon. Papaya. (laughs) I think you made the right choice. (laughs) I saw you thinking about it, and I support the choice that you made, Brandon. I'm Um, committed to this list. The Immortal Chelsea E. (laughs) Sunk Cost Fallacy, Brandon. Frankenstein. (laughs) Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Dracula. No! Dracula. <laughs> because I'm not saying uh, this uh, one. Uh. The next fruit was watermelon. <laughs> okay. Well, you guys are the best. Are the, the, the true great white father. The- you guys are the truth. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Frankenstein. Lily of the Valley. Dracula. Andrew Nestor, the lovebirds. Frankenstein. <sighs> the Keith Master. Dracula. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Frankenstein. John and Jill, little baby Max. Dracula. Jay and Katie who are cold in love. She's also salesless, including your faces. Clementines are number four. What? What's what's number what one? What kind of jank fruit list is that? Yeah, what kind guess. of jank fruit list is this? <laughs> Take a guess what number one is. And this is really janky. Go ahead. Apples? You're, you're not going to guess. No. Banana. N- banana's two. Oh, banana. Apples like is five. Apples thousand. is five. Can you believe apples is five? Boo. Plum, plums is six. Oh, okay. my goodness. Yeah, so no, where's that, pineapple? Number one. Okay. Oh, come on. That is the Number jankiest one. of jank fruit lists. 
Pineapple's pineapple. pretty great. Yeah. Pineapple's good, but number one? It's not number well, one. I don't know which rank ahead of it. The apple. It made us, it brought original oh sin into the world. <laughs> what? Come on. In, in drawings, anyway. Cherries is number three. Oh, boo. Right, Strawberry is number seven. Mango think, is number eight. Go ahead, I think Jake. The sorry. Greek word for, or maybe it's Latin. Anyhow, pun. Mm-hmm. It's a pun. Apple being associated with the fall is a pun. An original language pun, this either like either either Latin or or Greek. Like it, I can't remember it which. Sounds like the words "the fall." The or, word for sin. Oh, uh, nice. There you go. Or evil sounds or like something. Apple. <laughs> it's been a minute since I knew that fact, and so I'm having trouble pulling it. Well, I'm just going to, while you look it up, I'm going to give my list. Grapes, uh-huh. apples. Uh-huh. Grapes is number 10. It's Latin. That's pathetic. E- the words, the Latin word for evil and apple are the same. Malice. Oh, there you go. And, and that's not because of Genesis. Well, no, no. So Jerome made, Jer- Jerome made the pun and everybody is, has latched onto it since. So she could have eaten a na- uh, pineapple for all we know. It's just fruit. That's all we Maybe knew. It was just some... probably a kiwi. And until Jer- until Jerome, the paintings were weird. And after Jerome, it's apples. They all had apples. The 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 correct fruit list would begin with grapes. It would proceed to apples. It would then include what, what kind of grapes? Seedless, like purple ones. Concord grapes, maybe. But I'm sorry, anything that doesn't have blueberries, raspberries, pineapple. Oh yeah, yeah no, Bl- blueberries is a good like. In season blueberry would be number one. Out of season blueberries like number three, and then raspberries, strawberries, anything berry related. Any berry? Have you had good pineapple before? Like actually ripe, yes. fresh pineapple. I don't. I don't care. I don't care. Watermelon? No, watermelon's like doesn't even belong on the list. Watermelon is gross. Is that even a fruit? We are a literature podcast. We are a literature podcast. Fruit. <laughs> Don't call Jake a fruit, <laughs> Brandon. That's not fair. Coconuts on the list. You know, Nathan, I've already made that joke. I know. It's pretty <laughs> low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Papaya. Honeydew and cantaloupe are both on here. What a list. <laughs> what, what a list. What a list. What a list. Speaking of lists, let me finish reading this list. Do it fast. Frankenstein. Dracula. No constrictor marriage. He preferred for his Minute Get your gun. Flight of the Valerie. Thor Ragnajosh. Dracula. Steven dot dot dot. (laughs) (laughs) Frankenstein. What were we thinking with that one? Dracula. How proud of Nathan for coming up with it? Pegladon. What? What? 
guys, have we done so many episodes you don't even remember? Peglodon, our great, our patron, Peglodon. Okay. Dracula. You know what, Jake? You might not have been here for Peglodon, actually. Come to Was think of I it. here for Peglodon? <laughs> I must not have been. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon, you were here and the like your body was sitting there. It may have been drooling. I mean, Folks, that's pretty common. Hey, did we make it through this podcast without getting canceled? Time will tell. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right, folks. We'll see you next time. Bye.